Father, you are worthy of our praise. You're worthy of our affection. And you are worthy of our attention right now. So as we study your word, I pray that you would take your word, that you would plant it in our hearts, that it may produce fruit in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated this morning. As we customarily do, we dismiss the middle schoolers at this time, and they'll be going upstairs to the youth room with Pastor Luke. So middle schoolers, you are dismissed. The rest of us, we're going to continue what we started last week, our study of the book of Romans. So if you'll turn to Romans chapter 1, we got through one verse last week, and I promise you that we'll go at a quicker pace um, from here on out. So Romans chapter 1, we'll begin reading at verse 1. We'll travel through verse 11. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand. Pastor John, I'll slip you a Bible. We want you to read God's Word with us. So you have the Gospel narratives of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then the book of Acts and Romans, as most of you know. We'll begin at verse 1 of chapter 1. While you're turning there, a quick prayer request that um, this afternoon, Pastor Jim and Pastor Jesse, and as well as... um, uh, uh, Virtus Banowitz are going to be leaving for Peru, and they're going to be doing some work down there for the next week as uh, we support a, a Calvary Chapel down there, Corey Gilgis, who's planted a church down there, and he was here a year ago speaking to us as he was going to go down and plant that church. Uh, but we're looking forward to them going down, doing some work, and maybe some future trips down there. But it, would you keep them in your prayers uh, this week as they'll be heading down there to minister there in Peru with Pastor Corey? And looking forward to, to what the Lord's going to do with them. But with our Bible study here, we talked about last week as we opened up the book of Romans that Paul the Apostle in about 56 AD, he's at the end of his third missionary journey. And as you read Acts chapters 19 and in the beginning of chapter 20, you read about his third missionary journey. And as we discussed last week, that Paul made Ephesus uh, his base of operation, his, his kind of his uh, headquarters for three years on his third missionary journey in the city of Ephesus. Ephesus was a large city there in proconsular Asia, and many in the city were getting saved. Unusual miracles were happening by the hands of Paul. He had this discipleship school where he was training young men, teaching them the Word of God, and then they would go out and plant other churches uh, in proconsular Asia, those churches mentioned in the New Testament. So there was much fruit that came from Paul's ministry there in Ephesus. Many people gave their lives to the Lord. They uh, would forsake their idol worship and their sorceries. Well, the silversmiths, they would riot against Paul, and they drove Paul out of the city of Ephesus. He goes to Greece, and as he goes through Greece, He's going through the churches that he had planted on his second missionary journey. He's taken a collection from them. He wants to take that collection, that gift, those finances to Jerusalem where the Christians there in Jerusalem were going through very difficult times. They were going through persecution. They were going through famine. And Paul, as he stops in Corinth, which is, you know, down in southern Greece, he takes pen in hand and he begins to write a letter to the Christians that are in the city of Rome. 
He introduces himself as the writer, as we saw last week. Verse 1, let's read it again. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God. So Paul always saw himself as a servant first. He, he, he was one that, he's a wonderful example of a servant. And the writers of the New Testament, such as Peter and John and others, they would see themselves as bondservants. We talked about what a bondservant is, or a servant of Jesus Christ. And of course, they would live the words of Jesus, who told us that if we want to be great in the kingdom of God, we must be the servant of all. So all of us are called to be servants of the Lord first. And then he says, I'm an apostle, uh, not by the will of man, he would say in other epistles, uh, not self-appointed, but by the will of God, separated unto the gospel, the word apostle, as he's given his apostolic authority here, um, an apostle, separated to the gospel of God called to give the gospel throughout the nations, he will go on and say. And the word apostle means one sent out. And that's as far as we got last time. So let's continue to look and read at his greeting here and introduction in this letter to, again, the Christians in Rome, uh, which, by the way, is the longest introduction of any of Paul's letters that we have in the New Testament. So continue reading in verse 2, that which he promised before through the prophets, in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord who was born in the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. So the message of the gospel was not something that Paul had made up. He, it didn't come from the imaginations of men. Uh, uh, it is a message that has always been uh, from God from the very beginning. Ever since, even in Genesis chapter 3, from the beginning of time, we know that that's the promise, the first promise, that Messiah is going to come. You see, when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, uh, sin and death entered into mankind. And, and as God is telling them of the consequences, now sin and death has come, and also the repercussions of a fallen creation, that he would address the serpent, and he would say to the serpent there, in Genesis chapter 3 that I will put enmity between you and the woman between your seed and, and her seed and he shall uh, bruise your head serpent you shall bruise his heel in other words he's going to be bruised his heel they're going to drive a nail through his heel he's going to be crucified but he's going to defeat you Satan he's going to crush your head the promise of Messiah. He didn't leave them without any hope. He's going to come and die for sinful humanity. You see, the gospel has been since the beginning of time. And today in our culture and in our society, people are looking for something new all the time. They're looking for a new teaching. They're looking for a new revelation. They're always looking for a new thought or philosophy or what's the latest fad or what's the latest way in how I can be happy. Paul, on his missionary journeys, he would give the gospel, the good news. That's what you and I have. And it truly is the greatest news, the good news that we have to give to others. And on his missionary journeys, you know how he would go into the synagogues. He would reason with the Jews concerning Jesus, that he fulfilled all the Old Testament prophecies that were given as we see in the Old Testament ourselves. Even going through the book of Isaiah this week, we're going to see how he writes uh, about the suffering Messiah, 
uh, how he was marred more than any other man, that he was like a lamb that was led to the slaughter. And as we look at the Old Testament prophecies concerning Jesus in his first coming, there were over a hundred specific prophecies concerning the birth and the life and, and the ministry, uh, concerning his death and burial and resurrection uh, about Jesus, the first coming of Messiah, that he fulfilled to the letter, every dot and tittle concerning his first coming. Now, when it comes to the second coming of Jesus Christ, there's over 200 prophecies that are given, and we have confidence that those prophecies are going to be fulfilled as well concerning his second coming. So here is the Paul. He's writing to them, and he says, this gospel that's been from the beginning, uh, it's not new. Uh, it's what the Old Testament prophets would write about. And, and indeed, Jesus came and fulfilled those prophecies concerning Jesus Christ. He was born of the seed of David, the son of David. And in the gospel narratives of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, as you read them, you'll see people that will cry out to Jesus saying, son of David, son of David, have mercy on us. And when you read that term, son of David, it's a messianic term because they understood what the scriptures declared that Jesus would come from the seed of David. Second Samuel, the, pro the prophecy and the promise given to David that David, your throne's going to be established forever. And from your throne is going to come Messiah. So they understood that the Messiah was going to come through the seed of David, be a son of David, and the son of God becoming a man, dying on the cross, rose from the grave, proving that he is the son of God. The resurrection is an essential and important part of the gospel. The good news, and now that good news, as we receive the good news, saves all who trust in him. Paul calls it the gospel of God in verse 1. The gospel of Christ in verse 16. And we know that he calls it the gospel of his son in verse 9. It all centers on Christ, and all this to say that it declares that Jesus Christ is God. And then at the end of the book of Romans, we're going to read in chapter 16, when Paul's given his final farewell to the Christians at Rome, his final benediction, he calls it my gospel. It's my gospel. It's personal. So can I ask us all a question here this morning? Is it your gospel? Is it personal? Is it real to you? And I know that a vast majority of the people that have come through all three services this morning, that we say, yes, it is my gospel. It is personal to me. I've surrendered my life to Jesus Christ. But if you have not come to him, that he is the one who died for you. If you haven't come to the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of God, there is no other gospel that will save you. There's no new revelation to be received. No supposed good news that will deliver you. Only Jesus Christ who came and died for you, the Son of God, the, the seed of David, who came as a man and he suffered on that cross for you and for me, for our sins. And he rose from the grave and he sits at the right hand of the Father and there is forgiveness provided through his shed blood on Calvary and eternal life is promised and relationship through the Father, even as Jesus would declare in that upper room that I am the way to the Father. There's no other way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
And the gospel that Paul was dedicated to declare, he gave to the Gentiles, to all the nations, verses 5 and 6, through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. Through Jesus Christ we receive grace. And as most of you know, that word grace means the unmerited, undeserved favor of God. Paul, when he was writing in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, For by grace, through faith, you have been saved. It's that not of yourselves, it's not of works, it is the gift of God. If it wasn't for God's grace, we would not have salvation. We're not saved because we're good people. The apostle will lay out this truth beginning in this chapter here at verse 18 through chapter 3, verse 18, that every single one of us have sinned. I am not saved because I'm a good person or a member of the church or was baptized in the church or I served in the church or I gave to the church. How many people do we know and we talk to that they think that when they stand before God that they have merited heaven? You should let me in, Lord. I should be saved because I'm a good person or I was sincere. They feel like their works is good enough to get them into heaven. They don't understand that we need God's grace because none of us can merit God's forgiveness and salvation. It is the unmerited favor of God, grace, and only through him we have received grace and apostleship. Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles, or that is, all the nations. And that is why Paul was anxious to get to Rome, because it was the capital of the Roman Empire that encompassed pretty much most of the known world. And notice here, as we read in verse 5 again, just as we saw very clearly in our study of 1 John that we finished a couple weeks ago, notice that faith and obedience are linked together. Because faith in Jesus does something for me. I have a new heart. I'm born again. I have the Spirit of God that dwells in me. Among you also are called of Jesus Christ, verse 6. So you and I, as we have Christ dwelling in our hearts, the gospel is, is personal to me. It's real to me. It has the power to save me, to change me. Christ dwells in my heart. Then I am given to apostleship. I've received the grace of Jesus Christ, the unmerited favor, and apostleship sent out one. I get to go out among those who are linked to me in my life and I get to declare to them the good news. And you see, it's not only declaring to them with the words that we speak, but also in the way that we live our lives. Because the gospel is something that we believe in, of course, and we receive, but it's also the gospel that we live as they see the reality of Jesus Christ in our lives. We're different than the world. We're desiring to walk with the Lord, and, and we're desiring to be a testimony of, of the reality of Jesus in our lives. So we get to be sent out ones to take the gospel to family and friends and to others. And then now, as Paul finishes this salutation there in verse 7, to all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't know how the church in Rome got started. As I mentioned last week, it could have been that those who were in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, according to Acts chapter 2, it tells us that there were visitors from Rome. And of course, Peter, uh, he would stand up, he would preach, 
3,000 got saved on that day. It was the birth of the church. And perhaps some from Rome got saved, and they went back to Rome, and the church of Rome was started. Some have suggested that perhaps Peter started the church at Rome, but the Bible doesn't mention that. Matter of fact, after Acts chapter 12, we don't know a whole lot about Peter's ministry. It had begun in Jerusalem. He was the leader of the early church in Jerusalem. And after he leaves Jerusalem, James takes over as the leader. We see that Peter leaves, but we don't know a lot of specifics about Peter's ministry. We do know that, that him and Paul had a, uh, some tension going on up there in Antioch when the gospel began to, to spread throughout um, the Gentiles and the Gentiles were getting saved and Paul had to rebuke Peter publicly. He mentions that in Galatians chapter 2. But we also know, it gives evidence in the scriptures, that Peter would be in Corinth as well, that he would minister after Paul had planted the church in Corinth, that Peter was there because as Paul writes his first letter to them, remember, he's dealing with their carnality and their division. And he says, some of you say that I'm of Cephas, that is Peter, some of Apollo, some of Paul. So Peter, obviously, Cephas had been in Corinth. Um, also in his letter to 2 Corinthians, that it is told to us that Peter would travel with his wife. And I find that amazing. And I wonder what Peter's wife was like. I think she was an absolutely amazing, godly woman. I mean, think about this. All of a sudden, one day, her whole life, as she has this home in Capernaum, nestled on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, and all of a sudden, her husband comes home and says, that I have this itinerant preacher I want you to meet. And he told me, I'm going to be a fisher of men. And all of a sudden, her house, full of people, you know, just packed out. There's no room. It is believed that Jesus spent more time, of course, in, in Galilee than any other place. He spent more time in Capernaum than any other place. And he spent more time in Peter's home than in any other place. And when you think about it, God in human flesh that that little home in Capernaum became the Holy of Holies, where the presence of God was for all that time that Jesus is there. And then Peter would be an apostle, and she traveled with him. And, and whatever Peter did, he, he ended up being in Rome. He ended up being martyred. And church tradition tells us that they would martyr, they would put to death first Peter's wife, and he had to stand there and watch her be put to death. What an amazing woman that she must have been. I can't wait to meet her. So some believe that perhaps Peter started the church in Rome, but there's no evidence for that. And, and as you know, we think about this, it is believed that Paul would not have written in verse 15, I'm ready to preach the gospel to you at Rome if Peter was there. Paul's pattern was this. He ministered the gospel in places where there was no other apostles had gone. Lest should I build upon another man's foundation, he writes in this epistle. But as I mentioned last time, Paul in the last chapter of Romans, he addresses 26 people that he personally knew in Rome. 
Priscilla and Aquila are two of them. Those two ring a bell with you. They ministered with Paul in his missionary journeys. There was Adronicus and Junia called apostles. Perhaps they were sent out to start the church in Rome. Rome was a hub that people traveled to. In this 2,000 years ago, there was a saying that all roads lead to Rome. And then in verse 7, he writes again, You are all beloved of God. Not some of you are beloved, or a few of you, but you are beloved of God. That can be a real struggle sometimes for believers. Does God really love me? And Romans is going to answer that very, very emphatically and very plainly. As Paul writes in chapter 8, as he prays for the believers, oh, that you may know the love of Christ. You're all beloved of Christ, of God. Here he writes in verse 7, it tells us as believers, not only are we beloved of God, but we're called to be saints. Now, if you're a believer in Jesus, you are, by the biblical definition, a saint. That's the definition of a saint, one who is a believer. Now, of course, most people, and even some Christians, they have their own idea of a saint and as one that was a very special person in in religious history that sacrificially served God and did so many miracles and years after their death they were canonized by the church after this long process and then officially they became a saint well the biblical definition if you are a believer you are a saint you may not look like a saint you may not feel like a saint you may not always act like a saint but you are a saint by the fact that you are a believer in Jesus Christ. And because you are beloved of God positionally in Christ, you are a saint for God as well. And so as he says that, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you go to Israel with us on a study tour, we'll teach you a few Hebrew words. And one of the first words that we will teach you in Hebrew is the word shalom. That's how they greet each other in Israel. So if you go with us for a couple weeks and we're on a study tour, every day we get on the bus, we say shalom. We greet other people, shalom. It's the Hebrew, Hebrew word for peace. Now in the Greek culture, when the Greeks greeted each other, they would say charis, which means grace. That was their greeting. And now Paul takes these two thoughts, the Greek greeting charis and the Hebrew greeting shalom, puts them together in this dual greeting, and he always puts it in this order that we read. He does it in Romans and the other epistles when he's greeting the saints. It is always grace first and then peace. Grace before peace. And why is it? Because you will never have the peace of God until you have received and experienced the grace of God. And if anyone is trying to merit God's favor and love by their own righteous acts or holiness, thinking that I gotta deserve God's blessing and love by my own efforts, by my own religiousness, you're not, life is not gonna have true peace. You will always wonder, is it good enough? Have I done enough? But when we understand grace, the unmerited favor of God, 
And when we receive freely his grace in our hearts and lives, that unmerited, undeserved favor that God freely gives to us, and you stop trying to earn God's blessing as a recipient of his grace and his goodness, then you will have peace. You have, first of all, peace with God because our sin has separated us from God. And as we have forgiveness of sin, we have peace with God, but also as we walk with him as we enjoy him, as we learn of him, then we have uh, not only peace with God, but we have the peace of God in our hearts. So grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. I am thankful to God, to Jesus, for you all. In the book of Philippians, he would write, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. Paul was thankful for the saints. And notice that in verse 8, he said, I am thankful for you all. He didn't say, I'm thankful for some of you, most of you. I'm thankful for you except so-and-so. I can't stand them. I want to remind us that we are to be thankful for one another. And I hope and I pray that we are. One of the things that I was talking with my wife Sue about not long ago is, you know, the longer that we minister, and soon it's going to be 23 years at the first of the year that we came to start Calvary Chapel in our home. I am more thankful for this fellowship than ever before. I am more thankful for the privilege to be the pastor of this wonderful church and to be a part of your lives. When I think about relationships and just the opportunity to be a part of your life and your family's lives, the kids that are here, watching them grow up, it is an incredible privilege to me. You know, looking when I went out and watching the little toddlers worship in the toddler's room, just kind of looking through the window, that's more precious to me now that I've ministered for many years, because knowing that here they are being taught the love of Jesus Christ at a young age. Your children are precious to me. So to be a part of your lives and your family's lives, I am so thankful for. And Paul says, I'm not only letting you know I'm thankful for you all, but even though I've never been to Rome, I know some of you. And I've also heard of you, that your faith is spoken of throughout the world. And I pray that that would be said of us here at Calvary Chapel, that our faith in Jesus Christ would be known throughout this community in Weld County along the front range, range and, be, and beyond. You know, some churches, and they want to be known for how many people come, how big our building is, how many ministries and programs we have going on. But may it be spoken throughout Greeley and beyond about our faith in Jesus, that those at Calvary Chapel, they love the Lord, and they believe in the gospel, and they stand for truth, and they love to share the good news of Jesus Christ with others and serve others. They're light to this community, and they reach out to others. May it be said of us, of our faith in him, and may it abound more and more. And for God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers. 
not only thankful for them, but secondly, he prayed for them as well. That's the heart of a pastor. He prayed for them without ceasing. He would write to some of the other churches the same thing. I pray for you without ceasing. And I know for me that my ministry, I have not failed you as a pastor if I'm not the funniest pastor around or the most dynamic pastor, if I'm not the most popular pastor, if I don't have the most bubbly personality around. Uh, I know that I haven't failed you if, if uh, we don't uh, really push to bring in more people and bigger buildings and, and all of this. And some pastors, that's how they are measured their success by their boards, and by their leadership. That you've got to have these goals to bring in this many people, or you know, you've got to raise this amount of money so we can keep building whatever it may be. I'll tell you when I failed you. When I'm not teaching you the undefiled word of God, and I am not praying for you, when I stop serving you, when I stop having that heart of my desire, and I know I don't do this perfectly, that you're the best fed, best loved sheep that there is around to feed you and pray for you and to love you and to serve you and to see it as a privilege. That's when I failed you. And that's the kind of heart that Paul had for the Christians and for the churches. And he goes on to say in verse 10, making requests if by some means now at last I may find a way in, in the will of God to come to you. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gifts so that you may be established. He's going to say, as we will pick it up next week, that he was hindered at this time to going to Rome, to the Christians there. But he wasn't hindered from praying for them. And I want to read to you from verse 10 what the King James reads. You might have one in your lap. But the King James reads this, making requests, if by any means now at length, that I might have a prosperous journey by the will of God to come unto you. That I may have a prosperous journey by the will of God to come unto you. Paul would come from Corinth. He's going to go to Jerusalem. Acts chapter 19, his desire was to go to Rome, as he would say, after he makes his collection. And he would also want to go to Spain as well. So Paul had these traveling plans. And he's saying that, that I may come to you. This is my prayer. I pray for you guys, you know, without ceasing. This is my continual pray that my journey to you will be prosperous. And it would be a difficult journey. It was hard to travel in those days. There was no plane, trains, and automobiles. I'm kind of getting to where traveling stresses me out more and more. Not so much get me in a car, open space, I'm good. But flying and things like that, you know, it can be kind of stressful. And he, Paul is praying that I may have a prosperous journey when I come to you. And when you look at how Paul would get to Rome, and eventually he would, about three years later after he wrote this letter, he didn't get there perhaps in a way that he thought that he would or in a way that he hoped that he would. He would go to Jerusalem. And when he got to Jerusalem to give the gift to the Christians there, he was accused wrongly of taking Gentiles to the temple. The whole city rioted against him. They rushed to the temple. 
They, they grab Paul. They're going to kill him. The Romans have to come, guards, and take him into protective custody. He would go through a legal nightmare at that time that would last to upwards over four years. As Paul would be in Jerusalem, he would stand before the Sanhedrin Council, the Jewish Supreme Court, and they would riot against Paul. And they, they had this big upheaval, and they, they, they beat Paul. They hit Paul. There were men that were determined that they were going to kill Paul. We're going to fasten until, you know, we're not going to eat again until he's dead. So they got wind of it. They took him to Caesarea, that seacoast city. As you read those chapters in the book of Acts. And there he's in Caesarea in prison for two years. And he stands on trial before the governors Felix and Festus. And then finally before Agrippa in the amphitheater there in Caesarea. And he had appealed to, to Caesar. He was a Roman citizen. They said to Caesar, you're going to go. They put him on a boat. He warns those sailors, you shouldn't be sailing this time of the year. It's not good. And Paul at this time that he's writing this letter, he had already been shipwrecked three times, he writes in 2 Corinthians, floating around the Mediterranean Sea. And guess what happens? He gets into a storm on that boat on the way to Rome. He's a prisoner of Rome. He has a centurion that is assigned to him. And they're in a storm for two weeks. And finally, as you read those final chapters of the book of Acts, that the ship breaks up. They go down. He washes up on the island of Malta. And as he's there, he's serving the guys. All of them make it. He's gathering wood to put on a fire so they can warm themselves and dry up. And all of a sudden, he's bitten by a poisonous snake. Then he would finally make it to Rome, where he's under house arrest for two years, chained to a Roman guard 24-7, until he went on trial before Caesar Nero, who would eventually let him go at that time. But about five years later, after that trial, he would re-arrest Paul, put him in a dark, deep dungeon. And Paul would write to Timothy, that Timothy, my departure's at hand. And I have fought the good fight. I have kept the faith. I have run my race. And he says, Demas has forsaken us. And all have left me. Luke is with me. He was all alone. He says, bring my coat. It's cold here. And bring the parchments. And as I read about Paul the Apostle, how he went to Jerusalem and then all the upheaval and the legal nightmare he went through and being in prison and then finally Caesar Nero arrests him and he's in that dungeon and then he gives the order to have Paul's head lopped off, I think, prosperous. I can read that. We can read that and think he didn't have a prosperous journey to Rome. It was a perilous, difficult, full of trials going to Rome, but not prosperous. But we got to look at it from the Lord's perspective. Because Paul got to give his testimony there in Jerusalem before the crowd. He got the witness there before Felix and Festus. He was one that got to share his testimony before Agrippa and thousands of people in that amphitheater. 
As he was under house arrest, chained to a Roman guard, he would write to the Philippian believers, he never considered himself a prisoner of Rome. He says, I'm a prisoner of Jesus Christ, and my chains are for the furtherance of the gospel, and some of the palace guard are getting saved. You see, according to God's perspective, it was prosperous. And sometimes the journey that the Lord has us on, we want it to be prosperous, we want it to be easy, we want it to be comfortable, but it isn't. It's hard, it's difficult. But in eternity's perspective and view, God wants to use you still in a very powerful way to give the gospel, to love people, to give truth, and that's prosperous to God. You think, Lord, these people at work, man, they trigger me. They get under my skin. Family members, always a problem. Maybe that circumstance that you're in, you feel you're chained to it. Everything's falling apart. The ship's going down. But as you trust him, and as you look to him, It may not seem prosperous to you, but in eternity's perspective is as you look to him to be used. Lord, I'm here at this place at work because I may be the only light that these people have to be a light to my family, to share the gospel with others, that as I trust in you in this difficult situation I'm in, that you may be glorified somehow in some way. And even as Isaiah, as we saw in chapter 48, that the prophet writes that when we are in darkness, let him trust in the name of the Lord and rely upon you, Lord. And maybe you're here this morning, and it is not very prosperous, the journey that you're on, at least at this season, that you look to the Lord and you trust in him, and he's going to see you through. And Paul, at the end of his life, would say, After I kept the faith, I've run my race, I fought the good fight, and there is now a crown laid up for me. There's a crown for you. And he desires for you to be used in declaring his glory and his truth to others. And oftentimes, it's through that perilous trial that we go through and journey that we're on. But Lord is showing people the love of Jesus Christ through all of that. Because they look at you and they say, there's something different. They're trusting in something bigger. Lord, he must be real. Tell me about him. And Paul the Apostle always had that perspective. And may we as well. Lord, I don't know why I'm on this journey. I don't know why I'm going through this. But I'm going to look to you. And when I'm confronted with things I don't understand, I'm going to fall back on the things I do understand. That is your love. That you're working. And that you're with me. And I can trust in you. Because I can trust you with my salvation. I can trust you with my life. So, Father, thank you. We thank you so much. We thank you for your word. We thank you for these words of Paul inspired to write down that we can be blessed. And Lord, I thank you for the gospel that has the power to save. And I do pray, I pray for anyone who is here that maybe 
I don't want to be presumptuous and, and to think everyone's saved here, maybe listening on the live stream, or maybe later on the radio. If you have not given your life to Jesus Christ, to the gospel, the good news, there's one gospel, one message, Jesus Christ is Lord. And he came and died for you because he loves you. There's a sin problem. And he made atonement for your sin. He was put into a grave and he rose again after three days, proving that he's the son of God, as Paul writes in the beginning of this letter. And he comes to you and says, believe in me for salvation and forgiveness and right relationship with the Father. Receive my grace through faith. Believe that you need to be forgiven and surrender your life to Jesus Christ. That's the good news. And whoever calls on the name of the Lord, it's an invitation to all, will be saved. Will you do that right now? See, we're going to come to the communion table in just a minute here. And it's for the believer. It's for any believer as we remember what Jesus Christ has done for us as we hold the elements. So I want to give you an opportunity, if anyone has not, to come to Jesus, to be saved, to be forgiven. And you can do that right where you're sitting, sincerely in your heart. You pray, Jesus, I come to you. And I believe in this gospel message. I am a sinner, and I ask that you would forgive me. I believe you died on that cross for me. And yet you were put into a grave, and you rose again, and you're alive. You're the Son of God. And so I ask that you would be my personal Lord and Savior. This is now my gospel. And I thank you for hearing my prayer and bringing me to this place. I thank you for saving me. And I want to walk with you and know you. And I thank you for this new beginning in Jesus' name.